We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're putting it all in chronological order, the order the events actually happened, because we want to know the real Jesus for ourselves. We don't want somebody else's opinion on him. We want to see what does the Bible actually say? What did Jesus actually teach? What did he actually do? Last week, Jesus taught his disciples on the subject of hypocrisy, and he walked them through the myths, the lies that we buy into that cause us to end up being hypocrites, to live a life that looks different to what we claim to believe. This week, Jesus is going to continue teaching his disciples, and he's going to shift the subject to covetousness. And this is going to lead us into some issues involving money. Don't bother getting up. The doors are already locked. And I'm so glad that we study the Bible expositionally. That means we study the Bible verse by verse because I get to tell you this. Why are we talking about money? Because Jesus and the Bible are talking about money. And why are we talking about that part of the Bible today? Because we talked about the part that came before it last time. And next time we'll be talking about the part that comes after it. There's no agenda. The agenda is set by the word of God. And this is just where we are. And if you're sensitive about the issue of money, let me suggest that it's because the Lord wants to bring it to your attention. Can you imagine if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, I, I can't help but notice that your body is turning green. And you said, you know what, doctor, I think that's kind of my personal business. And I don't come here so that you can judge me. And the doctor says, okay, whatever. You come back the next time and the doctor says, you're, you're even more green. We got to do something about this. And you're like, doctor, I... I told you last time, why don't you just drop it? And in fact, it bugs you so much, you say, you know, forget this, I'm gonna try a different doctor. You go to another doctor, that doctor says, your body is turning green. We gotta do something about this. And then the next time I bump into you, I say, so, so what did you do, what happened, what happened, what happened next? And you say, well, you know what happened is I, I kind of decided that uh, doctors really only have one agenda, and every time I go see one, it's all about me turning green. That's all they want to talk about. I know before I even step foot in the doctor's office, they're going to want to talk about me being green. So, you know, I've just sort of, I've moved away from organized medicine, and I'm sort of practicing medicine on my own at home, and things are, are going really well for me. And you're thinking, well, you're turning more and more green. We would all think that's crazy. But when it comes to the Lord, when there is an issue in our lives, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he doesn't let stuff go. God doesn't let stuff go. If there's something that is holding you back from having the kind of life that he wants for you, the freedom that he wants for you, he's going to keep working on that issue. And that means anytime you go to almost any church, it's going to seem like that's the issue that's coming up. And it's not even because that's the issue that's always coming up. It's because God keeps trying to bring that issue to your attention. So if anyone's offended by talking about money in church, let me suggest it's because God is trying to bring it to your attention. So let's jump into the first question, which is just what is covetousness? The dictionary explains it as, and I put it on your outline, feeling or showing a very strong desire for something that you do not have, and especially for something that belongs to someone else. And it's not just wanting something. If you're thinking, man, I'd like to hit up Timmy's after church, grab a, a coffee and a donut, that's not coveting. Coveting is when you fixate on something and you ascribe it enormous value. In fact, you lift it up so high in your mind and your soul that you say, if I just had that thing or that person, then my life would be complete. Then I would be happy. Then I would have everything that I need. Or you tell yourself, I deserve that, not the person who has it, me. 
So maybe it could apply to a coffee and donut from Timmy's. I don't know how passionate you are about that. But let's jump in. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Verse 13. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So let's put this in context, what's happened last week. Jesus has been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God with power and authority and insight like nobody's ever heard before. Jesus is claiming to come directly from heaven and he's claiming that the Father in heaven is his literal Father. It's quite a claim. Jesus is performing miracles that no one's ever seen before to back up his message and the words that he speaks. You have his attention. This Jesus, you have his attention. So you are going to raise the question or the issue that you think is the most important thing you could talk about with Jesus. So what is it? For this man, it's Jesus. My father just died and left everything to my brother. Tell my brother to do the right thing and divide it with me. Not a question about eternal life. Not a question about sin, not a question about the nature of reality or eternity or what it takes to be right with God. Not a question about who Jesus is, but rather he tells Jesus what to do. Fix my problem. Get me my money. Show me the money, Jesus. And Jesus' response, understandably, is, are you kidding me? That's what you want to talk about? Now, Jesus' response doesn't mean that he never judges anyone. It doesn't mean that he will never take on that task. It simply means that when he came to the earth the first time, the time that we read about in the Gospels, he didn't come as a judge. But when Jesus comes to the earth the second time, as is described in the book of Revelation, he will indeed be coming as a judge. He will sit on a throne in Jerusalem as king of the world and will rule and reign over the earth, and that will include judgment. Jesus himself said in John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. So one day Jesus will judge, but not this time, not the first time. Now Jesus tells us what the real problem was with this man's request. Verse 15, it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, underline the whole rest of this sentence, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What a word from Jesus. Your life is not going to be measured by the amount of stuff that you have. The man in this interaction is coveting his share of the inheritance. And Jesus calls it coveting, which tells us that the issue isn't really fairness for this man. The issue is that he feels he deserves the money more than his brother. And the issue is that he believes if he can have this money, this financial security, his life will be set. All his problems will be solved. He'll have the joy and the peace that he really needs. And Jesus isn't saying that the man's issues don't matter. What Jesus is saying is compared to eternity, compared to being right with God, compared to being in relationship with God, compared to being forgiven by God, compared to those things, compared to those things, his issues don't matter. And we know from other things Jesus taught that our Father cares about even the smallest detail of our lives. In fact, just last week, earlier in this chapter, verse six and seven, Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So the point Jesus is making here is that for the person who doesn't know God yet, for the person who hasn't turned to him for forgiveness, all other issues are meaningless by comparison. They're meaningless. Hey, I can solve that issue with your brother, but then you're gonna spend eternity separated from me. So compared to that, this money issue with your brother, it's meaningless. There's only one thing we need to talk about. For the believer, the Lord cares about every little detail of your life. For the non-believer, the Lord would say there's only one thing that matters, knowing him. And all the other little details are meaningless if you don't know him. Jesus uses the man as a lesson for his disciples and he says, watch out. Beware, look out for lust in yourself for things because a person's life will not be measured by the stuff they have. And what hits me about this is Jesus is saying this to his disciples. So Jesus sort of dismisses the man because he wasn't a believer and that man should have been caring about bigger issues. The disciples, however you want to view it, they represent believers, you and I who believe in the Lord. So why does Jesus need to tell believers, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses? I'm gonna answer this by sharing with you what I see in myself, what I've recognized and realized about myself when it comes to coveting. When I covet something, for whatever reason it is, what I'm really expressing is the belief that Jesus is not enough. I'm saying that Jesus is not enough, and that's your first fill-in. Lord, I know your word says you'll supply all my needs, that you know all my needs before I even ask for them, and that you know me better than I know myself, so you know how to give me what's truly good for me, but despite all that, I think you're wrong. I think this is what I really need and deserve right now. Your judgment of what I need, God, it's wrong. Or what I'm really saying is, I know that your word promises joy and peace and fulfillment that comes from your Holy Spirit and has nothing to do with what I do or don't have, but that's not enough for me. However, God, if I had this thing, then it would be enough. Then I'd be happy. However I phrase it, however I justify it, however I frame it, the bottom line is that covetousness in my life is me saying to God, you are not enough. You're not enough. Do you see why Jesus might need to warn his disciples, why he might need to warn even believers about coveting? I still struggle with it in my life, struggling with it right now in my life. And the way Satan gets us to take that first step towards coveting is to trick us into believing the lie that what we really need to be satisfied is Jesus and blank. That blank on your outline is actually supposed to stay blank. The lie is you need Jesus and blank. If you believe that you'll be happy when you have Jesus and something, let me tell you the truth. Let's just be real here. You are right now coveting whatever you would put in that blank space. Whatever you would put in that blank space. Yeah, I love God. He's great. He's awesome. Center of my life. I just need this. Then it'll all be together. Jesus and whatever you would put in that blank space, you're coveting it right now. Jesus was asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. 
God can only ask that from us because he knows that he really is enough. He's enough to be everything we need and the liar says he's not. The liar says what you need to be happy is Jesus and something else. And God didn't give that great commandment for his own good. He gave it for our good because covetousness only exists because we look to the world. We look at the world around us to find an answer for the question, what does it take to be happy? We look at the world and we say, okay, tell me TV, tell me internet, tell me friends, tell me neighborhood, tell me coworkers. What does it take to be happy? And when we ask the world that question, the inevitable result is covetousness because we look to the world to find out what it takes to be happy instead of the one who, really get this, instead of the one who created us. He knows how we work. He knows what makes us happy because he, he made us. He knows how we work. We look to the world to tell us what kind of car we need to drive, what kind of house we need to live in, and we look to the world to find out what success looks like. We don't look to God. We say, I want to be successful. Okay, world, tell me. What does it look like to be successful? You see, the Lord knows that the world will always ascribe great value to things that are ultimately meaningless and worthless. If you don't believe me, you could ask the wealthiest man who ever lived, King Solomon, who summed up his lifelong pursuit of pleasure, riches, and fame by saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or as the New Living Translation renders it, everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. If you don't believe him, John Rockefeller said the same thing in his own way. I've shared this quote before. When he was already one of the richest men in the world, he was asked, how much money is enough for a man? And he was honest enough to answer with a wry smile, just a little more, just a little more. Mark Twain answered the question, what is civilization, by saying this, civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. A limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. See, your heavenly father loves you and he's good. So he desires to spare us from the pain of that vanity. So he invites us to give our entire heart, soul, and mind to loving the only thing, the only thing that truly satisfies and never disappoints, which is himself. He's a good God and he doesn't want you and I to waste our lives on the meaningless. Write this down. If I allow God's word to define success, I will be satisfied. If I allow the world to define success, I will covet and never be satisfied. If you let God's word define success, you're gonna be satisfied in life. If you allow the world to define success, you'll want what others have, you'll want what you don't have, and you'll never end up being satisfied. So I think we need to pause here and just get our minds in the right sort of headspace before we move on because Jesus is gonna talk here some more. And we need to know this is not a really, really smart man offering commentary on life. This is not a philosopher pondering the meaning of true wealth. This is not a life coach offering tips on how to manage your finances. This is God in the flesh, the one who stepped into time and space but has existed for eternity outside of time and space. This is the son of God who has conversed with his heavenly father about how the world will end one day. 
about what will take place when every person is judged by him before his throne. This is the only one who's ever set foot on the earth who actually knows how this thing called earth and the human race and eternity is going to play out. He's the only one. And that one, Jesus, the only one who has been to the other side, has entered into our space-time continuum and is telling us this is how it works in eternity. Not this is how I think, this is how it works because I've been there forever, because I rule and reign there. He's stepping in and he is telling us, this is what reality is, this is what's gonna happen, this is what will matter, this is what will not matter. I hope that as I've shared that, we're all lifting up Jesus to the highest place of honor in our minds and in our hearts, and that we brought our souls to the right posture before the word of God. We're in our hearts, in our minds, we're on our knees saying, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening, Jesus. I'm hanging on every word you say. With that posture, take in what Jesus says. The first thing he wants us to know is take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life. Not I think, but this is fact. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is sobering. This is, this is disturbing. This man who says, I've got so much stuff, I don't know what to do with it. I know I'll tear down my current house and storage sheds and build a bigger house. I'll build a bigger garage and bigger sheds for all my stuff. But none of his wealth could give him control over the fact that he was gonna die that night. You know, everybody dies on time. Everybody dies on time. He just didn't know it was his. He didn't know he would find himself standing before God that night where all his stuff was worthless. He couldn't take it with him. And all that stuff sure doesn't impress the God who made the universe by the words of his mouth. So let's break this down. And what we're going to discover is that covetousness leads to a progression. I I covet something or someone, which means I've chosen to believe God is not enough. Which leads me to believe that what God hasn't given me, I need to go get for myself. Which leads me to take credit for my accomplishments and my possessions which leads me to denying God as the giver of every good thing and even life itself. It starts with coveting and it reaches its conclusion in you and I taking credit for the things that God has given. That's the progression we're gonna see here. And we're gonna contrast the difference between the self-made man, the man who takes credit for everything good in his life, and the God-made man, the man who recognizes who God is and where every good thing truly comes from. So grab your pen and we're gonna underline some things as we read through this text again. We'll go back to verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying the ground, underline ground, 
of a certain rich man, yielded plentifully. So wait a minute, what was plentiful? The man? No, the, the ground. The ground was plentiful. This man only had an abundance because the Lord allowed him to live on a fruitful piece of land. I don't know how much you know about farming, but there are some places you can go. It doesn't matter how good you are. The land's not going to give you anything. It's not going to grow anything. So write this down. The God-made man recognizes the blessing of his circumstances. The blessing of his circumstances. So here's what happens in our culture. We say, but I didn't come from a wealthy family. I worked hard for everything I earned. You still benefited. Because you see, there are millions of people all over the world who go to work every day and work harder and work longer hours than you or I ever will. And them doing that does not create any potential for them to ever be wealthy. They will die doing the same job they started doing when they finished school. There's no potential for hard work to translate into wealth for most people in the world. You and I benefited from getting to live in a place where hard work can actually generate wealth. That's a big, big deal. I don't know why I was given this life. I don't know why I wasn't born in a dead-end village in some third-world country. But I humbly acknowledge that I have benefited incalculably from where I was born, from the family I was born into, and from the countries I've been privileged to live in. I didn't create what I have on my own. I benefited dramatically from my life circumstances. The God-made man humbly says, God, thank you for giving me this life. I recognize that this didn't have to be my life. I could have been somewhere very, very different. The man in Jesus' story doesn't see that. He just gives himself credit for everything. Look what I've done. Even though it was the ground that was plentiful. Verse 17, and he thought within himself saying, what shall I, underline I do, since I have no room to store, and then underline my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you notice that this man asks himself, what am I going to do with all this extra stuff I have? And then he answers his question with, I'll just build bigger buildings to put it all in. There's nothing in his thinking that says, maybe the reason I have more than I need is because It's not all for me. He's the center of his own universe. But even worse, he doesn't acknowledge God in any way. He doesn't speak to the Lord or seek the Lord's counsel regarding his future plans. He views everything he has as belonging to himself. He even goes as far as to be his own spiritual counselor. He seeks the counsel of himself. He says, self, what should I do? Which reveals what? It reveals a belief within this man that his own thoughts are the wisest counsel he could find. The very best advice I can find is myself. That's what he's thinking. There's no acknowledgement of God, no seeking of God. And we see that he gives himself spiritual peace by placing his trust and confidence in his stuff. James 1.17 famously says, every good Gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And when you study the godly men of the Bible who had great wealth, 
you find a common thread among them. They all recognize that God is ultimately the source of their wealth. When King David, who didn't get to build the temple, was fundraising for the temple, he was collecting voluntary offerings from the people of Israel. He stood before this amount of wealth. There's just probably this massive just pile of, of gold and wealth and jewels that was brought because the people just wanted to be a part of building God's house. David looks over all this and David doesn't go, oh, man, can I fundraise or what? David doesn't go, man, look at the kind of wealth that my rule has brought to this land. This is what he says. I put it on your outline. It's from First Chronicles. He says to God, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? And then underline, for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. All things come from you and of your own we have given you. See, see, David understands that they only had wealth to give because God gave them wealth. They're only giving back to God out of what he gave to them. It's like handing your kid a sleeve of cookies and saying, can I have a cookie? And your kid's like, I don't know if I want to share one of my cookies. You're like, I, I just gave that to you a second ago. You're going to give me one of those cookies. They're just giving back to you from what you gave to them. So write this down. The God-made man recognizes that all good things come from God. Is it good? It comes from God. It's really that simple. Then also make a note of this. The God-made man recognizes that when he gives to God, he is only returning a portion of what God gave him. Only returning a portion of what God gave him. So this man who takes credit for where God allowed him to live and how productive the ground was, this man who counsels his own soul and reassures it by reminding it to place its trust and confidence in the stuff he has, this man who views everything he has as belonging to himself, to this man who thinks he has all the bases covered, the following happens, verse 20, but God, underline God, said to him, fool, underline fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You know, any gift that the Lord bestows upon a man can be dangerous if it is not submitted back to God. And in the case of wealth, the danger is a false sense of security, the belief that money provides greater protection than the Lord. That's what we see clearly illustrated in this story. I don't know if you've realized this, but it's not that big of a deal to say, all I have is yours, Lord, when you've got nothing, right? You're in college, you have a broke down car and you're in debt. Everything I have is yours, Lord. All of it. I trust you completely. It's nice, but it, it doesn't really mean that much. It doesn't really mean that much. It's much more difficult when God actually gives you much, when he gives you wealth, when he puts it in your hands and in your stewardship. The original language is very harsh here. Jesus is using an insult. In our culture today, the literal interpretation would be Jesus calling this man a stupid idiot. You stupid idiot. It's that harsh. Isn't it interesting how in our world we tend to associate wealth with intelligence, particularly if someone gained their wealth through property development or investing in the markets or through venture capitalism or something like that. We tend to think they must be so smart. But you know, the Bible teaches there's a difference between being smart and being wise. 
I'm going to give you my definition on it. So if this is horribly wrong, you blame me. This isn't out of God's word. It's not scientific, but this is how I decided to think of it. You see, intelligence is the ability to understand how the world works and to use that understanding for one's benefit. That's what it means to be intelligence. You understand the world around you or parts of the world and you can use that to your advantage. Wisdom is the ability to understand how eternity works and to use that understanding for one's benefit. Whenever the Bible calls someone a fool, you're going to find out that the reason is that person has no understanding of eternity, true reality. This man was very, very, very intelligent. He's very intelligent, yet he was a fool. He had prepared thoroughly for a life which was at best a possibility while ignoring a future that was an absolute certainty. You fool, you fool. It's far better to be wise than intelligent. Far better to be wise than intelligent. And as I like to point out every now and then, that's good news because we don't all have the capacity for intelligence. Wives, don't look at your husband while I'm saying that. Use some discretion, okay? But we do not all have the capacity for intelligence. That's just the truth. We don't. But we all have the capacity for wisdom. We all have the capacity for wisdom. All it takes to become wise is being in God's word, reading it, believing in God's word, which means actually doing what it says, and asking him for wisdom. That's it. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And that's it. Any of us can be wise. Be in God's word. Believe God's word and ask him for wisdom. That's it. You may not be that intelligent, but wisdom will benefit you for eternity, which is far better. Jesus' point is that the one who is living thinking only of this life and not of eternity is playing the part of a fool, playing the part of a fool. True story, there was a guy in the 1800s who was sailing to China whose ship was hit by a terrible storm. It hit a coral reef and was broken into pieces and he was hurtled into the wild ocean. Everyone else on the boat drowned, but he miraculously washed up on the shore of a nearby island. As if it wasn't good enough that he survived, he was discovered by natives. And the natives, who had never seen a white-skinned person before, made him their king. And whatever he wanted, they were at his beck and call. They gave him everything that he could think of, anything he would ask for. He would just say, man, it would be really nice if I could just have that. And with that little passive-aggressive whim, they would go off and do to the best of their ability whatever it was that he desired. This was a good deal. And after about eight months, he, he began to develop more sophisticated communication with them. He learned a little bit of the language and he could sign in a more advanced way and things like that. And he discovered that they had a very unique tradition among their tribe. And the tradition was every now and then they would determine that somebody had been ordained by their gods to be their king. And they would make them king for a period of one year. And after that period of one year, they would beat that person's brains out with a club and sacrifice him to their gods. I think we would all agree that this new information changes things. So it's month number eight, and he knows he's, he's only got four months until he's finished. Kaput, it's over. So what does he do with this information? 
Well, he thinks about it and then he puts the tribe to work building him a boat and stocking it with supplies for a long journey. They finish the boat and stock it and right before the year is up, he hops in the boat and sails back to civilization. True story. We would all agree this man was smart. He acted on the information he acquired and he made good choices. He realized, you know what? This thing, as fun as it is, is coming to an end. And if I don't make plans now to prepare for what is definitely coming, I'm going to get wiped out and this is all going to be for nothing. Jesus is using the story, which has a similar moral, to get us, you and I, into the headspace of thinking along these lines and understanding that this life is not going to last forever. Jesus is the one from the other side of eternity who has stepped into our world and told us all about it. Said this is what's gonna happen. Because he loves us, he wants us to think about the big picture and not be found playing the part of a fool. Who is the fool, Jesus says in verse 21. It's he who lays up treasure for himself, underline himself, and is not rich toward God, underline God. He's saying this man was a fool, a stupid idiot because he was rich toward himself and poor toward God. And I just want to point out, this is not a parable about class warfare. It drives me out of my mind when people think God likes poor people more than rich people. He loves everybody. And I don't know if you've realized this, but you can be cut off by a stupid idiot in a $200,000 car or a $1,000 car. There's idiots everywhere across every part of the economic spectrum. Being poor doesn't make you more righteous and being rich doesn't make you more sinful. This is a parable about covetousness, putting your hope in stuff instead of God. Do you know what part of God's remedy for covetousness is? It's tithing. And if you think that only rich people have issues with money, spiritual issues, let me tell you that as a pastor, I've seen plenty of people who are not rich get very upset when they find out that the Bible teaches 10% of their income belongs to the Lord. And why are they mad? Well, because the church just wants my money. I'm sorry, whose money? My money. Whose money? Maybe your problem isn't being wealthy. Maybe your problem is that you view even the little you have as belonging completely to you. When God says he owns it all, He owns the universe. And if he owns the universe, let me just ask, do you think he needs your money? He doesn't need your money. What he wants is to rid you and I of this poisonous belief that what we have doesn't come from God or belong to him. God is saying, if you believe that, then we got a problem. The reason we have a problem is not because God only owns your money. It's because if you're a follower of Jesus, God owns everything in your life. He owns your money, he owns your spouse, your kids, your time, your stuff, your talent, your connections, your network, your relationships. He owns it all if you're a follower of Jesus. When we decide to follow Jesus, he doesn't give us a sheet that has 10 categories and say, pick five of these 10 that you're gonna give to me completely. And we go, okay, I'll give you my talents and my abilities. I'll give you Sunday mornings, (laughs) not my relationship with my spouse. Um... The deal is that we're giving him our lives, all of it, part and parcel. 
And he knows that it's going to be a lifelong process to help us actually figure out how to do that. Because we tend to hold on really tight to some stuff. And I don't know if you've realized this, but money's pretty close to the top of that list. We're fine letting some things go, but we, we have a hard, hard time with money. That's why a third of all of Jesus' teachings are about money and stuff. One third. Because he knows, man, that's an issue and it's going to be an issue as long as people are people. And we're only going to complete the process of really trusting him with everything when we arrive in his presence. So in the area of money, Jesus says, I don't need it, but you need to give it. So that you learn and remember every paycheck you get, it all belongs to me. I'm the one who gave you the ability to work. I'm the one who gave you skills. I'm the one who even gave you the ability to earn an income. The verse we read earlier, Deuteronomy 14.23, says it plainly. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. So write this down. Tithing is a regularly scheduled reminder that everything we have belongs to the Lord. It's a regularly scheduled reminder that everything we have belongs to the Lord. He's the source of everything good we have and he needs to be first in every area of our lives, including money and material possessions. Now get this, because if you have a way of thinking in your mind that's off on this, we need to correct this. Tithes are not offerings. Tithing is giving back to God what is already his. He says in the Bible, it belongs to me. He doesn't say it's nice when you give it. He actually says when you don't give it, you're stealing from me because it belongs to him. Don't be mad at me. That's what the Bible says. So you can't give an offering if you're not tithing. You can just tithe inadequately. That's what you're doing. You can't give an offering if you're not tithing. An offering is what you give above and beyond your tithe. Our tithes are commanded by scripture. Offerings are voluntary. It's what we choose to give above and beyond the 10% the Bible gives as a starting point. Whether you give it to the church or a Christian charity or a missionary, whatever, tithing is commanded. Offerings are voluntary. We talked about this in our men's group recently. In Psalm 139, it says this about you and I. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them. So in other words, in modern scientific terms, we would say this. Our very DNA, our genetic coding, the genetic coding that dictates our personality before we're even a fetus, the genetic coding built into us that dictates our natural abilities and our inclination towards certain skills and get this, our capacity to learn and acquire certain skills. All of that was known by God and given to us before we were even born. A gift from God. You were only able to develop the skills you have. If you're thinking, yeah, but I went to school for eight years to learn how to do this, you could only learn how to do that because God gave you the capacity to learn. Not everybody has that capacity. You could only acquire those skills because God put the raw ingredients inside of you genetically to be able to pick up on those skills. You could do nothing without God, nothing. And without the gifts he placed in you while you were still in your mother's womb. There's no such thing as a self-made man. There's no such thing. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Be careful of taking credit for what God placed inside of you. 
be careful for taking credit for where God allowed you to live by his grace. Be careful for taking credit for the family that you were born into. Instead, be humble, fear God, acknowledge him, bless him for his goodness and his kindness, give to him gladly, be rich towards God, store up wealth in eternity. How do you know you're being rich toward God? How do you know that you're not playing the part of the fool? Well, as we found it, it centers on not viewing yourself as a self-made person, but rather recognizing, man, I benefit from God's grace and goodness. If you wanna be rich toward God, this is the summary. It means recognizing that all good things in your life, including where you were born, the family you were born into, the place you live now, your talents and abilities, all good things come from the Lord. If you wanna be rich toward God, then give him the credit. Don't take it for yourself. It means recognizing that all things belong to the Lord and when you give to him, you're only giving back a portion of what he gave to you. It's already his. Practically, God asks that would be expressed through tithing, giving him what he says belongs to him. Write this down. If I'm gonna be rich toward God, I need to find a way to invest my time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom of God. My time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom of God. The eternity that I'm destined for. This might step on some toes, but I'll say this real quick. In, in the area of time, if you have filled your life so full of extracurricular things that you have no time for the kingdom of God, I want to challenge you to readjust that. Find a way to readjust that. Get rid of something that's ultimately meaningless and replace it with something that's going to profit you for eternity. Your talent, your abilities, find a way to use them for the kingdom of God. And treasure, if you're not tithing, start tithing. I'm bold about that because God asks us to do it. And maybe you're thinking, you know, this is all good. This is all good, but I, I can't help worrying about how my practical needs are going to be met. It's keeping me up at night. It's consuming me. The, the fear is overwhelming. Don't miss next Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be one of my favorite teachings in the entire Bible and Jesus is going to speak to that. He always does it. He always gives a challenge and then he gives a reassurance. He says, I want you to take this great step of faith and then Jesus always backs it up by saying, and here's what you need to know. Here's what will calm your fears about taking that step. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. You know, the table of communion is where we are reminded of what we really deserve. At the table of communion, we're reminded that what we really deserved was death. And it's where we're reminded that instead of getting what we really deserved, we found grace. And that does something when it comes to coveting. Because all those parts in you that say, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. You take communion and you really meditate on that. You're reminded, thank God I didn't get what I deserve. Thank God I didn't get what I deserve. And when you have that mentality, when you have that understanding, then you begin to say, so everything else I have that's good is just grace. It's just gravy. It's just blessings. It's just the kindness of God. Communion is where I pause and pray once again. Thank you, God, that instead of getting what I deserve, I've been made rich eternally through your son, Jesus. I should have nothing and you gave me everything. Psalm 90, verse 12. I want to encourage you to, to meditate on this as we go into our time of worship. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
Teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here's what it's saying. The psalmist is saying, God, help us to understand how little time we have left so that we will understand how brief our time on this earth is. And that'll give us a heart of wisdom. Instead of building a kingdom here that we are gonna leave behind, we'll build a kingdom there where we will spend eternity. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to not waste our lives, to not spend our energy pursuing things that are vain and meaningless, and to instead trust our loving Heavenly Father when he says, I'm the best thing for you. I'm the best target for your affections and desires. I'm the best thing you could worship. I'm the only thing that will satisfy. The only thing. I hope we'll believe him. I hope we'll believe him. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you didn't know the nature of reality, know the nature of eternity, and leave us in the dark. But Lord, the moment we fell, the moment we rejected you in Eden, you began crafting a book that would explain to us what happened, how we got here, who you are, where we're going, what matters and what doesn't matter. You're a good God in, in just giving us your word so that we're not in the darkness. Father, help us to not willingly look into the light of your word and then turn back to the darkness and strive in the darkness, toiling for the wind. Lord, help us to live lives that are rooted in the belief that we're gonna spend eternity with you. Help us to shake off everything that's meaningless, everything that is vanity, and to fill our lives with the things that are gonna last forever, God. Give us the discernment to examine our own lives, and we just invite you, Holy Spirit, come and do what you wanna do in us, Lord. Shine a light on the things that you wanna illuminate. Lord, we wanna be an open book to you. We want to have ears that hear and eyes that see. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but instead giving us grace, instead giving us your presence and freedom in and through you. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.